we all have an inherent greatness in ourselves. We're going to approach a sub-I as we approach everything else in life. The best thing that you could do is fully realizing the career that you want to go into. So if you, if you love family medicine and you go do family medicine sub-I, you're going to show these people your passion every single day. You're going to, you're coming in with positivity, the willingness to work, kindness, and the clinical acumen. It should be 110%. Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tannick. Welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast, everyone. I am happy to be back in the saddle and releasing another episode. Really excited about this one with my good friend, Dr. Michael Klapodlo. Since the last time you heard my voice through your earbuds or speakers or however you listen, I took step two of the USMLE and and Comlex level two and am now a fourth year medical student. So congrats to me, I suppose, and congrats to everyone else who is in the board exam grind either right now or perhaps just recently. It's really, it's tough in so many ways, but we're getting through it, right? Yes, we are. Okay, I have some good episodes lined up for your listening pleasure in the near future. Of course, don't be shy to send questions or comments or any leads on potential guests that you think would be good for the show to the primary care podcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much. And don't be shy to leave a review or a comment on whatever listening platform you use. Um, So thanks, everyone. I'm glad you listen. Today's episode was recorded a few weeks ago, and I was still recovering from a horrible sinus infection that I had the few days prior. And I was feeling a lot better than the previous three or four days, but still wasn't functioning my best. And perhaps you can hear it in my voice as well. The days preceding this recording were easily some of the worst I have ever felt in my entire life. And to be honest, it put a damper on my Step 2 and Comlex 2 studying for sure. But I really wanted to get this podcast recorded because we had to reschedule last minute on our first attempt. And then we were going to do this episode in person. But as I just said, I got sick and didn't want to get my guest sick on the eve of his first day of residency, so we switched to a video conference format. Oh, the trials and the tribulations that go into releasing an episode of the Primary Care Pod. It is rough out there, or in here. Anyway, that brings me to my next point. So let me introduce my guest today, Dr. Michael Klapodlo is an osteopathic physician who graduated from medical school at Rocky Vista University this spring, 2021. And he has just recently begun his residency 
in internal medicine at St. Joseph's Hospital in Denver, Colorado. He and I discuss how we met during medical school, both on the leadership team of the Family Medicine Club and how he slowly got more attracted to hospital medicine and specialty medicine over the course of his clinical education. We discuss his love of clinical reasoning, and he breaks that down for us in terms of its importance for young learners and the process by which the experts do it, perform clinical reasoning, that is. We discuss the importance of mentorship in medical education, as well as the profound impact of therapeutic physical touch in medicine. And at the end, Dr. Mike tells us some insights into evidence-based medicine. And along the way, he tells us about his humble blue-collar upbringing in New York City and gives his systematic approach to landing the residency or fellowship of one's dreams by using the available data, 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 to guide the types of activities and scholarly pursuits that one would want to engage in during medical school. I really had a great time talking shop with this newly minted doctor and my good friend, and I hope you got something out of it too, or I hope you do when you listen. So let's delay no longer. Here is Dr. Michael Clopadlo. Ross, it's an incredible pleasure to be here with you. I remember first talking about the idea of this podcast and to see how far it's gone. I am so impressed and I'm so happy that you invited me to talk. Yeah, I love it. You were you were there. Uh, you, myself, and Dr. Pitcher were kind of scheming about some sort of idea for a podcast. I'm glad that we've uh, been able to make it happen. And and Dr. Pitcher has been helpful in, in finding some guests for me. And, and here you are being a guest yourself as a, as a physician. So amazing. Let's uh, get right into it and let's learn a little bit more about you. You are an internal medicine resident starting tomorrow. So give us, uh, you, you know, you're going to have to be given a lot of one-liners. So give us your one-liner. Yeah. So I think my one-liner as a person, I'm a 26 year old male who listens more than he speaks, loves to work and learn, enjoys time with friends and family, preferably in an outdoor setting while making food for others. Those are all my interests and everything I like. <laughs> That's, that was thorough. I like it. All right. So, um, yeah. So where, where are you from? What's uh, your childhood and upbringing like? My, I grew up with a Polish immigrant family. They came here in the early nineties. We were in Queens growing up in a two bedroom house. Uh, my grandpa made cardboard boxes after washing cars when he came to America. My grandma cleaned houses and my mom, she was a travel agent before. She was a stay-at-home mom for my stepsisters uh, later on. Um, my family's been a real prominent, prominent figure in my life, in my upbringing. I saw the hard work that they put in and that really rubbed off on me in the right way. And then my, my path to medicine wasn't straight. It was definitely... Uh, semi-curvy, semi-straight, because in high school, I knew I wanted to help people, but I didn't realize my academic potential. Mm -hmm. So in, I was told to entertain the idea of going to PA school. And within uh, my college studies, I had two mentors, Dr. Petty 
and Professor Verana, they said to consider medical school because I was really loving it. So went to explore medical programs and here I am. Yeah, so it sounds like your uh, family was hardworking and, and blue collar and not in the medical field at all, huh? No, not at all. Uh, it was, I think I am the first person to go into medicine within my family. And that itself posed some challenges because getting in the pre-med uh, era, getting exposure to physicians and having those letter recommendations would be were, were tough. I had to really lean on my friends that I met through um, my pre-med program. Oh, it wasn't a pre-med program, but uh, it was actually pre-PA. Mm-hmm. And I just so happened to have a friend who had a father who was a physician, and that really helped me in in terms of getting into medical school. So if if you don't really have a college that does not have a pre-med program, it could be somewhat difficult to get the experience that you might need to apply to medicine. So when I did get that opportunity, I took it and um, was able to get in. It's a definite barrier to break through, especially if you haven't had any background in that in your family. Um, so we met, you and I, um, in my first year, your second year of school, of uh, medical school, and we were both in the Family Medicine Club, um, which is a branch, or a, I guess, yeah, a, some, a branch of the ACOFP, which is a national organization for osteopathic family physicians. You were the president, and I was uh, coming up. I eventually um, succeeded you um, as the next president. Um, once you won some awards doing that. And I thought I was like, Oh, wow, he's gonna be such a great family doc. I uh, can't wait until he matches in family medicine. But here we are in your, uh, um, you know, starting residency in internal medicine. So how did that go uh, from family med to internal med? That was so difficult for me to make the transition because I started off in medical school first year listening to Dr. Park, uh, one of the deans, I believe now the dean of the Utah campus of Rocky Vista. Mm-hmm. And he really uh, showed me a great picture of what family medicine could be. And it's truly an amazing career. I've had then firsthand experiences working with residents in North Colorado, in uh, Ventura, in California. And the level of training and thus the scope that they have is incredible. I mean, in California, I spent two weeks in the ICU. You had uh, family medicine trained docs in the ICU and mixed in with uh, critical care docs. Mm-hmm. Then uh, in Colorado, I was with a, a third year resident who, uh, you know, one day in the clinic, we were seeing a patient who, who was a, had 32 week gestation. Mm-hmm. And then the next patient uh, had uh, or was being treated or ha- is being prepared actually for HCV treatment. So the things that he was seeing was incredible. But then the decision to, to pursue internal medicine instead of family medicine came from a mix of personal lifestyle choices and then uh, reasons that I would have in, uh, regarding my training and residency. So I knew I wanted to work with underserved patients in the metro area. And you could work with underserved patients in any specialty. Yeah. Um, but I say metro because I had the experience of going to places like rural Wyoming or even really where there's thousands to in Wyoming, there was hundreds of people in the town. Yeah. And I I said, I wouldn't fare well in a living situation like that. 
And I know that while there are family medicine trained physicians that work in hospitals um, in metro areas, I think internal medicine uh, is far more com common. Yeah. So it was, it was, uh, I, I like that, that you were like, I don't think I would want to live in a small town. Is that what kind of brought you to a, a bigger city? I thought that, but then also I, I gave it the experience. I think it's important to right. toy with the idea and then actually put your feet on the ground of what that idea could be so that you could truly experience it. Yeah. That's really good advice. And then the next thing that really brought me to internal medicine was the training that I would get in three years and how I would spend that training. Mm -hmm. And I saw my career in the future, not really having a lot of OB patients, especially in a metropolitan area. I feel like they're uh, better suited for OBGYNs. Um, and I personally have not heard of many family medicine physicians in the metro area still delivering uh, their rabies and whatnot. Yeah, it's pretty rare. And, and knowing that, I would rather have the exposure to subspecialty rotations in, say, you know, G, uh, GI or hemonc or uh, cardiology mm -hmm. to better help the patients that I'll, I'll probably for, uh, interact with more during my career. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, the last podcast I recorded was with uh, uh, our friend uh, right before graduation, Colleen Marr, and I asked her kind of a similar question about does she think that there, she's going to get training in areas that she's not actually going to end up using, whether it be sports medicine or um, OB or pediatrics or whatever. Um, and she kind of came up with the idea that, you know, no matter what training you get or whatever specialty you go into, you're going to have training that you don't end up using or, or all that often. So I, it kind of just depends on like what kind of training do you want to seek out for yourself and which things can you be okay with not having or having too much of. Right. Right. And I think that that kind of leads into the next question that would be, well, all right, I don't want to do FM because there's no, you're probably not going to do much OB. So why not med peds? So I'm an entertaining fellowship. Uh, although I still have an interest in working as a hospitalist, I like being inpatient. Um, if you do med peds, most of the pe people who graduate are going into a primary care position. I mm -hmm. think about 70%. There's like the National Med Peds Residency Association. Most of the uh, people are going into um, uh, primary care positions. About 15% go into hospitalist positions. So I knew through my own experiences in the uh, third and fourth year that I did like the hospital a lot. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's very interesting. I, 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 and, and, and I was, I was able to say, yeah, I love kids, but I could, I could say, no, let's let a pediatrician or a family medicine doc or a med peds doc. Right. I was okay with that. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have guessed that about med peds. I would have maybe said the opposite that 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 would be more of an academic specialty that um, you'd see more pediatric hospitalists or pediat or uh, just uh, adult hospitalists from that profession. But to add to that now. To become a pedi uh, hospitalist pediatrician, you need to not only do the three years of residency, but then also two to three years of fellowship. Mm -hmm. So another barrier to get into that field. If you're med peds, you'd have to do a fellowship in, in pediatric hospital medicine. Mm -hmm. Did the number of possible potential residencies 
sway your decision at all? Because I just know that there's a lot more internal medicine residencies than there are med peds, for instance. Yeah, I, I don't know if that factored in a lot. Um, I don't think I have a good answer for that one because, yeah, I don't think I swayed it at all. Well, that's okay. I just know that I feel pretty lucky that I'm interested in being in family medicine and trying to stay here in Colorado as well. And there's a lot of programs here in Colorado. There's something like 11 family med in the state. And there's less than that for internal med. There's less than that for peds. There's one peds program here in in yeah. the state. And same thing with all, basically any other um, specialty. If it's OB or general surgery or psychiatry, there's not that many. So, um, you know, it's just a, a, one more thing to think about, I suppose, in terms of weighing your residency options with locations and specialty outcomes and stuff like that. That's a really good point. I guess I didn't really consider it because I'm a single guy, doesn't have a family, doesn't own a house anywhere, so I could really kind of pick up my bags and go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but if you do have those things, that's certainly a, a big, big point. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, um, let's get into your your um, preclinical years. Um, we kind of talked about a little bit where you were as a, uh, a on the leadership board of the Family Medicine Club. Um, what does what does leadership mean to you? Why did you get into uh, that leadership role? So before I answer that question, I think it might be better off to ask a question of or what 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 is the goal? Like you come into medical school, what certain mm, benchmarks do you have to hit? What mm -hmm. what numbers do you have to hit? Because when you look at the data of when you're applying to residencies, it is a numbers game. There's a bunch of data. Um, obviously quality should be greater than quantity of the things you do. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why I picked to do, do that role, and then there's multiple, one of them is because I had the interest and I thought I could do a good job. Mm -hmm. I previously worked in restaurants and was a general manager, uh, assistant general manager. And I felt like I can, uh, I did well at that. So let me apply that to a more quote unquote academic experience. Mm -hmm. So that's why I chose to do and become the, president of ACOFP, but going back to like, what are the benchmarks that we have to hit? And when you, I think it's really helpful if, as a medical student, you get accepted, you start medical school, you take a look at the NRMP data. Mm -hmm. And those, they have sets of data for DO students that are applying and MD students that are applying. And they have far more data points for MD students just because there are more MD students. Yeah. And for those who don't know who are listening, maybe from uh, somewhere else, the NRMP is the National Registry or sorry Residency Match Program. Program is Correct. that right? Yep. And they have a tons of different charts and tables that um, kind of tell all about matching in different specialties, what programs are looking for. They have program director surveys, and they they put out these nice looking charts to make it real comprehensible. And there, there's, I encourage everybody to look at that and then see what numbers the vast majority of people are uh, producing with their ERAS application and try and set thoughtful goals to meet those. And I say thoughtful because you don't want to do, and I'm guilty of this, but you don't really want to do things for a month or two, maybe three, four times and then kind of fall off. Yeah. Pick things that you're incredibly passionate about 
and think you could do a good job at and that can help you grow as a professional in the future. So one of those things for me was to become a president, the president of the ACOFP. And at that time I had a strong interest in, in family medicine, mm -hmm. but throughout that experience, I was able to work with an incredible team, um, Jordan, Colleen, Hamid, um, everybody, everybody was, was great. Yeah. And, great team. Uh, to be able to be able to work with all of them, um, showed me that, okay, now I can, I've done this before in different settings. I apply it here and it's the same skill set, just for different things. Um, and that was, that was helpful for me. It was a good talking point. So let's go on to uh, talk about your clinical experience. Cause I know I actually ran into you on your clinical experience. Uh, you were on a sub internship at the program that you are, um, starting as a resident St. Joseph's here in Denver. And I was a third year student on my uh, internal med rotation. Uh, so kind of just walk us through your uh, experience there um, going through third year. Let's start with. Yeah, I think so. I think third year is a great time to narrow down the search for specialties like uh, we're probably going to talk about. And yeah, I think throughout that time, it's very cliche advice, but you have to give it your all in each rotation that you do and envision yourself if you do that for a long time. And that, that that's with a, a clause because it's with the hope that the rotation that you're doing is reflective of the actual career. Yeah. So for example, some people could have family medicine rotations and you're now rotating in a practice that serves primarily adults. And it's not showing you the true breadth of what family medicine is. Mm -hmm. Whereas another person can go up to like North Colorado and they could be go going from a, a OB call to um, treating kids in the clinic to, um, doing inpatient hospital wards and, and it's really robust. So it, it, the rotations that you get also have to be taken with a grain of salt because you might not get full, the full experience of what that specialty can give you. Definitely. And then the, the second tip on each rotation that you are or going through in, in third year is to connect with people that uh, have strong passion in the rotations that they're, or in the specialty that they're in. Mm -hmm. And once you find those people and you like that rotation, latch onto them, ask them to be a mentor. And so you don't have to force mentors because I had that pressure as well, where I didn't really have incredible experiences. I had great experiences, but they weren't incredible experiences. My first in third year, mm -hmm. my uh, pediatric rotation was great. My surgery rotation was great. I didn't have a uh, jaw dropping medicine rotation and it wasn't until, um, there's other things that happened third year, like the COVID pandemic, where my interest for internal medicine grew. But then also I've met mentors throughout fourth year. And while it would be quote unquote late in the giant scheme of where we have to apply, because the whole application cycle goes pretty quickly. Like if you prepare for it quickly, if you get the mentors quickly, to get the letters quickly. Yeah. And I met those mentors late, but it was okay because they were still able to support me. Even if it was a little late, they were still able to support me with my application after I had started submitting things. So it's, it's, it's scary because you have to find things quick. And then sometimes you don't find the right people until it's not too late, but you know, cutting it close. Right. But even when that happens, it's still okay. So when you talk about finding a mentor and mentorship, 
I, you sound like you're talking about getting a letter of recommendation, which is an important aspect of the uh, application for residency. But what else goes into being a mentee or being a mentor, or that relationship? I mean, it's, the relationship is a two-way, two-way street. Being a mentee is expressing your interest and your passion for a certain specialty or subject. And by chance coming across somebody who has the same interest and is willing to assume the uh, position of a mentor. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's hard to come across because we all have different interests. So what does that person do for someone, you know, a, a medical student uh, rising up through the ranks? I mean, they, they offer their insight. Mm -hmm. The best provider of experience is time. And if somebody in that specialty has the time in said specialty, they can have their own life experiences that they share with you. And that could just make you, you stand on their shoulders and that can make you a better physician. Yeah. It's important to just be super forthcoming with what you like, what you don't like. And, and that way you can be honest and get as much out of it as possible. Or at least that's my experience. Sounds like that's what you're saying too. I agree. I, I guess this is a good time to share my experience. I had already decided to, to go into IM. I had applied already. Mm -hmm. And one of my passions is, is humanism in medicine. And um, I like clinical reasoning as well. But humanism specifically, I always tried to be thoughtful with the words and mindful within patient encounters. And mm -hmm. I was on a nephrology rotation and I got to spend a day with my now mentor, Jatenda Rao. And he saw the excitement that I had in clinical reasoning and, and the, the attitude towards learning. And he, he just built upon that. And every day we'd come back together and, and go through cases that he's seen that are very complex, but there were learning points for him and then also learning points for me. And the other thing that uh, I really enjoyed and that he picked up on was humanism. We saw uh, a patient who had uh, been pre-diabetic. She was uh, being worked up for CKD, then uh, really changed her life, changed her lifestyle, and got her A1C down naturally through, through fitness and exercise. And I, I just said a comment that resonated with him, and it was just commending her for her work. And from that moment, we had this special bond because he – also uh, is a fan of a Dr. Abraham Verghese. Have you heard of him? Mm, kind of rings a bell, but he wrote a book sure. called Cutting for Stone. He's got a great TEDx. Um, oh, yes, video. I do know who you're talking about. He's from video. Stanford. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. He's got a great TEDx video on the importance of touch. And yep. um, Dr. Rao shared with me that video. And I, I had known him from uh, Dr. Verghese from Stanford. He's got the Stanford 25 where he teaches 25 physical exam maneuvers that are important to have. Oh, yeah. But this, but just the sheer concept of touch in the patient experience or the, in the patient encounter is something that connected Dr. Rao and I. And that adds to the character of who we are and what the physicians that we want to be. And the fact that I have somebody um, who is my mentor who enjoys the same thing that I do, that is just going to be built upon. Yeah, that's a good point is that you found out you um, kind of connected on the concept of clinical reasoning in difficult patients 
and then you know through connecting on that you realize you connected on other uh, in, in other ways on other topics such as you know humanism and physical touch and being there for people um, and that sort of thing well I want to um, get to clinical reasoning I'm gonna put a pin in it and come back swing around to it because I uh, want to get through a little bit more of your experience here um, and just let me know if you have any important uh, words of wisdom for people or just share your experiences on uh, um, your process of evaluating programs you decided that you wanted to go into internal medicine you found your mentor how are you deciding which programs that you're gonna apply to and or the order of your ranking those programs. So when you go about evaluating programs, you first have to evaluate yourself. And I think now we are very lucky that we have something called residencyexplorer.org. It's what I primarily use throughout the whole exploring programs, um, I guess, ordeal. Yeah. It takes your variables, including your scores, mm -hmm. your work experiences, volunteer, et cetera, everything that's on the NRMP yep. data, it factors all those, you plug them in and it could stratify your programs from your quote unquote reach programs, your mid tier and uh, comfortable programs that mm -hmm. you could apply to. Okay. And that's all based on the history of the residents that they accepted. Now there's obviously more factors that go into which programs accept which residents like location, their desire to be there, whether ties they have to the area, mm -hmm. their familiarity with the medical school that you're coming from. Those are all things that are important. But I think it's really important to evaluate, evaluate yourself before you evaluate the programs. And then from when you have that list, I would go through each program, go to their website, and hopefully it's nice and detailed, and just go through what things do they have, what is their mission, and does that mission align with mine? Mm -hmm. Did you legitimately look at any programs and look at their mission and say, no, I'm, I don't, I'm not feeling that program. I don't agree with their mission or it's just not hitting the same bullet points that I want them to hit. I think a lot of programs, there's, there's a lot of similarity between a lot of programs, but for some reason I felt various programs had a little stronger emphasis placed on their, that mission that aligned with mine mm -hmm. and that sense that I had spoke a lot to me and maybe I, I did not think about the other programs as, as much. Yeah. So it's not like you saw things that you didn't like didn't in their like, missions. Right. It's that you were not, you know, drawn to it as much as others. Right. Yeah. Cause others had a, uh, uh, they projected it better that that was their mission. So I said, well, I like this a lot. Okay. Um, okay. So we've, uh, gone through the websites and figured out our um, if our, the programs are aligning with our values, now what? So I differentiated programs um, for certain variables, and it could be completely different than what other people uh, would do. To remind people I'm, I'm a single guy, I could pick my bags and go really anywhere. So if you have a family, if you're, uh, you have a wife that needs to stay and work, it's going to be very different. So when I differentiated programs, I took five things into consideration. It was the location, mm -hmm. what EMR they used, the opportunity for fellowship, my perceived culture of the program, mm -hmm. and the rotation schedule. That's more so the order in which I, I, uh, of importance for those factors. Okay. 
How do you go about evaluating the fellowship uh, availability? So you have to look for, hopefully it's on their website, previous match list for the program. Okay. And you could see where the people are going, what type of fellowships they're getting into. In IM, for example, is this program producing cardiology fellows? Are they getting people into uh, Hemonc fellowships? Right. Um, do they have their own fellowship program that takes their own residence? That's interesting because I haven't really explored internal med residency like you have. So I never really thought about that there, those lists exist because in family medicine, I haven't really noticed them, but I also haven't been keeping an eye out for those types of things because there are fellowships from family med that are relevant and competitive uh, in a similar way to internal med, but um, cool. All right. Um, and so what were, sorry, what were the other three? You said location, fellowship, yeah. culture. Rotation schedule was the last one and EMR. Ah, and EMR. I think, so location for me was activities versus how close I am to family. And one, one of my uh, attendings always told me, when you pick residency, go as far south and as far west as you can. Because <laughs> then when you have your off day, you have beautiful weather, you could truly enjoy your day off instead of it being gloomy and whatnot. But that's his personal experience and some people will enjoy other things. But I resonated with that. And I feel like being able to stay in Colorado is, is great because it's always sunny. Nice. Um, and I was able to, to say, okay, my off days off or my days off, I'm going to have the activities that I want to do rather than say if I was closer to family in New York, I would love being with family. So this is the thing that rejuvenates me. But then the gloominess and the weather, and it just didn't, it didn't, feel like I could utilize every single day off that I had the way I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. Um, you know, it's important for any profession, I guess, is to enjoy your time away from work. But you know, when you're a resident and you barely have any, then that becomes more valuable. So you gotta, you gotta, you know, recharge and, and feed your soul rather than deplete it a little bit more. Absolutely. And then, so the next point was EMR. And I think, it also helps with uh, work-life balance. If you have, my personal opinion, if you have an EMR like Epic or Cerner um, compared to Meditex, you'll all you'll always learn how to use EMR the best. But mm -hmm. after some time, you're going to make it work. But I think certain ones are more streamlined and they lead to more happiness because it's easier to use making right. work easier, making, allowing you to leave work earlier so that you can enjoy the rest of the day. Yeah. And I, I felt like Epic for me, uh, was an important part of my criteria for the programs that I picked. That's, that's very interesting and makes perfect sense. And I'm, I'm with you on that too, because I've worked with different ones throughout my third year and some I'm like, Oh, well, this is fine for now, but I wouldn't want to be stuck with it. And then other ones I'm like, this is pretty sweet. Um, but I definitely at no point up until <laughs> the last couple of months would I ever imagine judging residency programs, you know, where I wanted to end up and get my training done based on which EMR they carry. But, uh, but I think that is absolutely relevant and the way you put it is perfect. Um, okay. So bring us to the interview. You talked about kind of figuring out which places you wanted to apply. 
what were those interviews like? You, you talked about you did it during COVID. They were Zoom interviews or in some vi- uh, you know video format. Um, what was that like? Yeah, so virtual was very different. It was so nice to save all, about $5,000, $8,000 not yeah, traveling. Geez. And the time. It was incredibly helpful to... I largely got all of my interviews scheduled within December, mm-hmm. plus minus one or two that were outside of that time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were surprisingly organic. Okay. Programs, I think, did a, a lot to um, make a time frame, um, give you the time frame, and make things go smoothly. Okay. Um, I had one experience where uh, my computer wasn't working, and that was kind of uh, scary. But yeah. um, the program was completely um, happy and, and willing to work with me. Yeah. Uh, and eventually it worked out. Um, one thing that really stood out on the interviews was how insightful the questions were being asked. So I had experiences where questions were very generic and they would be repeated amongst different interviewers for the same program. No, oh, weird. Versus other experiences where I had really targeted questions to things that I had either my personal statement or mm-hmm. the listed activities. And I love those because it really gave me a chance to show my interest. And at the same time, it showed me that the program was really looking into my application and showing that they could possibly nurture those interests if I would be a resident there. So I picked up on that and it really it left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth when the programs would do the former rather than the latter. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that rings true to me for sure. Is you know when it seems like they're trying to get to know you, that's a good sign. And mm-hmm. when it seems like they're just reading off a list, that's a little bit less of a good sign. And you also yeah. have like 15, 20 minutes with everybody. So taking that into consideration, and then going back to our mentor discussion before, mm-hmm. we all have different interests. And sometimes something will, will look a little more shiny to someone versus somebody else, if that makes sense. So they'll, the interviewer will pick various things that they feel like they're interested in and might gauge your interest or may, might gauge your experience in that said thing. Yeah. Okay. So then um, after all your interviews, you said they were all in a relatively, most of them were in a relatively short period of time in December. Um, then what, how, uh, then did you, did the interview itself really change your idea of where you're going to rank all these programs? No, I think the, it was, it was great. And I think it did change my rank order list. The tough part about the virtual interview is that, so if we go through a hierarchy of, of the being able to experience the culture of a program, you go, you have a, uh, a wave rotation mm-hmm. and you have a in-person interview and then a virtual interview, mm-hmm. the virtual interview being on the bottom of the total bowl. But it was always impressive when a program could really convey the culture. They have the residents there. They have the resident get together. Um, they allow you to join morning report. They um, allow you to join like other extracurricular activities because it was all virtual at that point. So you really still got to experience the culture of a program and that did change uh, my rank list in ways. I was, I was pleasantly surprised by some programs and made me more attracted to going there. One of the things that uh, I really want to touch on throughout the interview day 
-hmm. is that you should be making lists of all the people that you interact because then that'll help you after with sending out thank you emails if the program accepts them. Right. Okay. Good. Um, so you talked about sub internships being like the primary way to get to experience a program and get in with the program and most likely get an interview with the program and evaluate, uh, the location and everything else about it. Um, so tell us how, how best do you do that from the sub internship point of view? Like how do you succeed in the intern, uh, in the sub internship and get everything out of it that you want to? Yeah. So I couldn't find data on how many sub internships can be done in IM in now this COVID world. Mm -hmm. um, so forgive me for that. Well, that's okay. Cause it's confusing. There's a number of different uh, recommendations out there from different entities. So I, I imagine, you know, better, better than me. Um, but so vaguely um, we all have an inherent greatness in ourselves. We're going to approach a sub I as we approach everything else in life, the best thing that you could do is fully realizing the career that you want to go into. So if you, if you love family medicine and you go do family medicine sub I, you're going to show these people your passion mm -hmm. every single day. You're going to, you're coming in with positivity, the willingness to work, kindness, and the clinical acumen. It should be 110%. And true, there's going to be weaknesses. Yeah. We're not going to know everything, Yeah. but your opportunity to change your opportunity to grow is part of that greatness that you inherently have. So programs see that, I, you know, for example, when I was with you during my sub internship, I, I definitely didn't know things. I wasn't great on uh, presenting. I needed to work that out. I wasn't great with my antibiotics, but these things mm -hmm. were worked on throughout that month. And if they could see an objective change from day one to day 30, your greatness still continues. <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think, you know, if you know how people have the live, laugh, love, uh, in their kitchens or in their uh, dining sure, rooms, sure. you should have, there should be a saying, live every day as if it was a day during a seven internship. Just always give it <laughs> your all. Trying your best. Yeah. It, it shouldn't really change because when you come in as a resident, you're, you're going to do the same thing and your, your patients expect that your coworkers expect that. Um, and you should expect it of yourself. Yeah. It's, it's definitely hard. You mentioned a number of things. You said, you know, you're going to show your positivity, your effort, your engagement, your clinical acumen. And I'm over here, you know, finishing my third year, about to take the uh, step two of the boards and should be kind of peaking in my clinical knowledge. And I feel like, oh, I'm scared to go uh, uh, have somebody ask me like, OK, what do you want to do next with this patient in just a few short weeks here? Um, because it's daunting. It does. I, you know, you look back and you see how far you've come, but still at the same time throughout training, you always feel like you don't know that much. It's so scary. And I think the three scariest words to say is I don't know, but that's the beauty in medicine is the fact that you might not know something, but then can go look it up and learn more or learn from somebody who knows mm -hmm. and share that group think is very powerful. And we'll talk about it later, clinical, uh, regarding clinical reasoning, clinical problem solvers, but really being able to get vulnerable and make that the culture within the groups that you work with is so important and being able to 
build upon that and get better. Um, I guess that's the right way to put it. Take constructive criticism and, and go further. Yeah, definitely. And, and um, I think that's a pretty common advice is that, look, nobody expects you to know everything, try right. your best. And if you show improvement, then that's probably the best thing you can do anyway. You wouldn't want to know everything right off the bat. No, I mean, if you could, that'd be great. But uh, I suppose, although I think they'd smell a rat in in some way, because how could that possibly be that you know everything and then and then don't they want to see improvement anyway? Isn't that one thing that they're specifically looking for? So if you don't show it because you're already a champ, (laughs) then I don't know, maybe you missed out on having them evaluate you as such a, you know, great taker of constructive criticism. That's true. That's true. Um, one of the other things during a, a to, I think, get everything out of sub-internship, and these are the, the little special considerations that uh, make sub-internships special, is that you have, you're there on site. You're able, you can meet with a PD. Mm-hmm. I, I would recommend that. Show your face as much as possible. Be with the uh, program director. Present cases if there's morning report. Or present a chalk talk. Sometimes they will say, okay, give us a talk on acute kidney injury. So take three to five minutes, make it nice and succinct, and make sure to follow up on those. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the wards can get extremely busy or clinic can get very busy, and um, you might, the residents or um, the attendings might forget about a certain talk that you're supposed to give. But say, hey, I, I prepared this talk. I'm ready to give it. Let's, let's take three to five minutes right now and just talk about it. Yeah, and you don't and have to do that in a formal setting. You can just do yeah. that with your team. Uh, wherever you are absolutely it's it's even nice if you um you know type it up on the computer print it out and have it ready to show everybody you have four or five copies nice yeah really okay helps. awesome um okay well so you talked about um a little bit about finding a, a fellowship after residency you touched on that a little bit before you mentioned cardiology or hemonc maybe even gi if i remember correctly um but so then where are you thinking of going sorry in which direction do you see right now in this moment in time as your future career yeah it's very broad um i think through life steps we have to make certain decisions and then we make a, a tangential turn towards that and then the next tree starts to branch and i think that tree still hasn't branched yet mm-hmm. um i am exploring just continuing academic medicine and in patient setting and mm-hmm. being able to teach on rounds uh but then also fellowship regarding specifically hemonc and nephrology so and, and those are just from the experiences that i had right uh, third and fourth year yeah, and that kind of goes back to what you were saying about the value of mentorship and in, in that it can really change your direction in life and, uh, of course, your career. Um, so then how does one go about setting themselves up for specializing, you know, applying to and getting a fellowship? It doesn't seem like there's all that much time because you have to be applying in your early in your third year of residency if you're going into a three-year residency program. Um, and then you match sometime in the, I guess, depending on what specialty you're going into it sometime throughout that year. Um, 
so what do you, how do you get to narrow that down? Like what can you do during your first and maybe second year of residency to even set yourself up to being a competitive applicant in that way? Yeah, I, I don't think I'm the best person to ask that question to because I'm just so new in there. But I do know a couple of things. And it's that, well, I'm hoping to have a clearer mind in terms of what direction I want to go to six months into residency. Because mm-hmm. like you said, it's very quick. And things that I started doing is things that I have done in medical school. I opened up the NRMP. There's data for all the fellowship matches Mm -hmm. and they take into consideration similar variables that they took into consideration during residency so pulling that up and seeing what unfortunately it's a numbers game it's of course a quality game but um, seeing what people are applying with and if i say that i'm going to apply to a certain specialty i'm going to try and reach those goals now during the first year of uh, residency, I hope the program in which you go realizes that you have a certain interest and you want to explore a uh, possible fellowship. They will put you on electives that will hopefully get you various mentors and opportunities that mm-hmm. can allow you to explore those things. So I'll, I'll be having a, a hematology oncology rotation coming up uh, early fall. So being able to explore that and gain, gain mentors will be helpful to be hopefully better answer this question six months down the road. If someone were to ask me again. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I like Hemonk. It's a, it's a very, uh, I, I got to do a, a month of it in my third year. Um, so it's a very cool specialty and, and definitely a meaningful profession to be in. Um, and it kind of lends itself to clinical reasoning um, which we kind of teased earlier that we were going to touch on, but I think now's a good time because uh, hemonk, you mentioned uh, nephrology as being like uh, clinical reasoning, you know, hotspot. So, first of all, what even is clinical reasoning? What can we do to get better at it, especially throughout our uh, time in medical school or residency? Yeah, I think to backtrack a little bit, clinical reasoning is in any field. Um, not only hemonk and nephrology. Um, yeah, certainly there's uh, the the differential for thrombocytopenia or differential for AKI. They're certainly there and very common in those two fields. But family medicine, you're always clinical reasoning and um, geriatrics. Any field has clinical reasoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first got exposed to clinical reasoning, it was throughout third year, I discovered this podcast called Clinical Problem Solvers. And it's these two people, uh, Dr. Reza Manesh and Dr. Rabi Geha. They were clinician educators, and they wanted to democratize clinical reasoning. They basically took problems that were presented to them and eloquently presented their thought process of what are they thinking about for various clinical situations. Then, so I, I watched those podcasts or I listened to those podcasts intermittently throughout third year. And then the COVID pandemic happened, rotations were canceled and they did this brilliant thing where they started a virtual morning report every morning. They got online and people were presenting cases and they would have 
two discussants and one case presenter and somebody writing down uh, case notes. And they would share, they would allow the uh, volunteer discussant to share their clinical reasoning. And then the master clinical reasoners would support the discussant and, and they really have a conversation between what are we thinking about for this case and how are we formulating um, formulating our thoughts. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's incredibly difficult. I, I had the privilege to not only present, but also uh, discuss on, on various student morning reports. Um, and it's, it's nice when, so it's, it's easy to think that, oh yeah, I can think through it. But then when you have to bring your thoughts to your mouth and actually say, and nicely put your um, thinking aloud, it's, it's very difficult, harder than you think. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's hard to even just remember some of the basics. Uh, you know, I've been just caught being like, oh my God, what's the name of that medication or just some, you know, noun I'm looking for or some anatomy uh, vocab word <laughs> and then it just won't come to me. Um, so it's it's very difficult to put together a whole difficult, complicated clinical picture of somebody who's got multiple comorbidities and you well, what should we direction to go and why and what are we looking for and how are we going to rule this out while looking for this? Um, it's incredibly difficult. So, and, and I agree, like people come with various problems and which problem is noise and which problem is actually uh, sound. Like, sorry, that's not the way. You signal. should cut that out. Yeah, <laughs> signal. What you said, what's signal, what's noise? I Thank you for reminding me that word. Um, and, and they go through in these um, talks of uh, there's clinical reasoning vocabulary and, and this can be taught and I'll go through them with you. Um, various things that they talk about, it's really four, um, but when you, there's also a lot of resources that you can use. So not only you can use uh, clinical problem solvers, mm -hmm. uh, I believe it's .com, if not it's .org. Okay. They have a lot of resources there. Then clinicalreasoning.org is also, is another resource, and okay. when you when you talk about clinical reasoning, one of the things that is said is a schema, S C H E M A. Yep. And we have had the opportunity with Dr. Palace, and he teaches schemas. There's basically thought trees that we use to approach clinical problems. So one that's very common that we all really learn in medical schools is uh, acute kidney injury. Mm -hmm. You learn at different branches of pre-renal, intra-renal, and post-renal. And then you learn underneath those branches their own respective problems. So you take that concept and you apply it to other things like edema. Is it unilateral, bilateral? Then is there a hypovolemic or hypervolemic state if it's bilateral edema? Mm -hmm. And then you just expand on that within those the trees. So that's the essence of what a schema is the next thing that is important in clinical reasoning yeah no keep going was is problem representation so they talk about three things it's, it's who is the patient what's the demographic what's the length and the tempo of the disease that's going on mm -hmm. and the clinical syndrome so you take really complicated cases and it's it's different than a one-liner because you're in a one line you're trying to include every variable, mm -hmm. but in a problem representation using something called semantic qualifiers. So here's an example that I, I took from uh, clinicalreasoning.org. 
one that's not a problem representation. A 60-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis presenting with one day of left ankle pain and swelling, as well as one week of malaise. She's been on prednisone 20 milligrams daily for the past six months. On exam, she's febrile and tachycardic with left ankle edema, erythema, and tenderness with active and passive range of motion. Blood work is significant for a white blood cell count of 15. Now you make that into a problem representation, and it, it's basically a one-liner that you throw into Google to try and get an answer. Hmm. So to summarize it, it would be a 60-year-old immunocompromised woman presenting acute monoarticular arthritis and a surge response. And a what? A surge? A, a surge response. Surge. Uh, Sorry, yep. Inflammatory response. Got it. So it, it takes these really complicated things and distills them into bite-sized pieces that we could actually wrap our minds around. Right. Yeah, you took a, a whole paragraph and put it into one sentence right there. Is, um, and kind of just the important parts and you know you can talk about things for a long time and then somebody can sum it up with one or two words um which i found would be happening to me all the time in presenting on rounds in the uh in my hospital rotation is you're talking you're talking and trying to describe something going on and then somebody's already got a word for it you know and it's a skill that you you eventually get with repetition and time Time is very important uh, and, ex and exposure. Yeah. So how? So you listen to that podcast a lot, um, and it kind of gave you a couple of those, um, just, uh, you know, you said four pieces of framework to organize your thoughts. Um, yeah, and so I know you've you've hit on two of them, uh, and I want you to hit on the the rest of them as well. But I also want to kind of set ourselves up for talking about how do we actually go about practicing this throughout our time in medical school and residency. But keep going with the the rest of uh, clinical reasoning bullet points here. Yeah. So uh, when we have this problem re representation now, we have this very sh short and sweet one liner. Now we have another vocab word that we use in clinical reasoning is called illness script. So we basically make a Rolodex of, or we make mental notes that we put into a Rolodex of problems that we encounter. Mm -hmm. So we know um, congestive heart failure, we have all the signs, symptoms, um, the tests that we would do. And we now take the illness script that we've created and what we've seen in our clinical experience, and we try and match that to the problem representation at hand. And then the last part of clinical reasoning is, is the idea of the dual process theory. There's uh, a book called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Um, yeah, that sounds familiar. Which talks about system one, which is fast thinking. It's intuitive, it's efficient, you, you recognize patterns. And then system two, that's slow. You're more analytical, intense, and deliberate. And I believe in the beginning, as learners, we're, we're using system two, we're thinking slowly, we're trying to be deliberate. But after a long time, you're gaining clinical experience, and a lot of things become pattern recognition. The downfall and, and the worry is that sometimes you use system one more than system two. But when you're able to do clinical reasoning and talk about cases, you, you dive deep into system two thinking, because it, it ends up going towards what you just asked is how do we get better at this? Yeah. And it's to take the time and get as many repetitions as you can. 
whether it's joining the clinical problem solvers uh, virtual morning report, which still goes on, you can sign up for it mm -hmm. and express your clinical reasoning. There's another uh, thing, an application called Human Diagnosis Project, which they have a case of the day. Um, it's kind of a walkthrough and you have a final diagnosis and you have to just share your thoughts on what the diagnosis might be by inputting it. And you, that's one more repetition you could do a day. Yeah. And then just even in your day-to-day -day practice, um, there's this one talk uh, who, Gurpreet Dhaliwal, he was the mentor of uh, Dr. Manesh and Dr. Geha for clinical reasoning and starting this podcast. He has a, a talk on YouTube. It's called Good to Great. And he talks about the difference between someone who's experienced and expertise. Mm -hmm. And it goes, I think the summary of it is taking the extra step every day to try and get that repetition in saying, Hey, this person's got leg swelling. I, it's most likely a heart failure because it's bilateral, but what else can it be? Mm -hmm. What are the two other causes? Is it a kidney problem as well? Or is there a liver, liver problem going on as well? So taking those extra moments to think about what else could this be makes it great. Uh, I want to talk about your transition to internship. Um, for those who aren't familiar with the term internship is the first year of your residency basically no matter what residency you're in um, and you'll be starting yours tomorrow uh, here at St. Joseph's not too far from where, for, from where we both are um, so you know you kind of just talked about all the things that you need to educate a patient on and that sort of thing and clinical reasoning but that becomes a lot I guess it, that changes tomorrow where you're actually a physician, you're responsible for these patients that you're going to be seeing. Whereas, you know, so far throughout your entire life, you haven't been. So what do you see as being like the biggest challenges going from fourth year medical student to physician, resident physician, Michael Klopadlo? I love this question because I feel like the challenge was I'm expecting certain challenges regarding the responsibility that's placed on you and the emotional burden that's placed on you with medicine. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, I, I have no idea what challenges might be uh, coming uh, coming up. One of my favorite quotes is from Mike Tyson. I just shared it with somebody today. Everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Yep. And you, you just don't, you don't know what you can get into. Um, but I think having a, a good, support system around you, whether it's exercise, family, friends, the residents that you work with, that's going to really help you through whatever challenges you can get through. One of the challenges that I'm uh, really anticipating is the white coat, uh, is it the, is it white horse syndrome? No, I'm sorry. I'm forgetting. White coat syndrome? White, no, white coat syndrome. Oh, man. Well, now I don't know. Um, imposter syndrome. Sorry. No, oh, there you go. Yep. I kn now I know what you're talking about. Imposter syndrome. <laughs> uh, we all felt it, or at least I felt it in the first couple of years of medical school saying, who let me into this position? I can't believe it. And I'm definitely awaiting this feeling in the first two, three months. What makes it a little easier is going back to sub eyes. If you could do more sub internships, 
the benefit is that they give you more autonomy. So if you have those two, two to three patients or four patients that you can be the pri quote unquote, the primary caregiver, most responsible for them yeah, and get into that role earlier and more frequently, I, I believe, and I'm hoping that the imposter syndrome won't hit as hard in the first year of residency. Yeah, that's good advice. I know a lot of people listening are probably sometime in their first, second, third year, maybe fourth year of med medical school. Uh, so setting up opportunities to not be lazy your fourth year. I know I'm, I, I have uh, four sub-internships set up right now, and I feel the pull to want to have like, I'm, I'm kind of torn in between setting up as many difficult challenging rotations that are going to build those clinical skills and, and clinical reasoning and also wanting to be a little bit lazy um, and have really easy rotations too. I want both those things. And maybe it's possible to have all those things. Um, but, you know, like you're, you're saying right now, and, and nobody has really told me otherwise that obviously you're going to go in as, uh, you know, as, um, prepared as possible if you have better more challenging experiences during your fourth year where you have that autonomy and and uh and are challenged yeah and I, I i heard it from an attending most people after this sub internship in say november or maybe they even do one later in january they kind of check out um and i got a nice commendation by an attending in april she commended me for continue to do medicine rotations until then. Mm -hmm. One, I kind of had to because of the COVID pandemic kind of set me back. Okay. But two, I'm very grateful that I did because I, I don't feel so far removed now. Yeah. And I still got my six weeks of vacation afterwards. I feel very recharged. Yeah. Anything more than six weeks or maybe two months, I would be a little, nah, not stressed out, but. A little rusty. Yeah, a little rusty. But, you know, to add to add to that, I, I love internal medicine. I love what we do. So it didn't really feel like work. And it, it just was for the better. Yeah, that's good. Well, on the other hand, uh, I guess I did hear from one person who's uh, going to be starting her residency here soon that, oh, she's like, I loved my fourth year because I didn't have to do a whole lot. I got to relax a little bit uh, more than third year. And maybe her third year was uh, more challenging than uh, that she thought it was going to be. And she wanted to relax a little bit more. So she scheduled more easy rotations for herself and then, uh, you know, ended up having a great match. So it's not that you can't match in a great place uh, if you take it a little bit easier for, during your fourth year. But I guess she felt kind of burnt out or jaded or just tired um, and wanted to recharge. So I guess that, you know, there's different uh, ways to play it. But do you feel or did you feel before your six weeks of recharging um, burnt at all? Just just globally tired or uh, I would jaded I would at all? I would share with my friends that I my schedule and that I was going to in April and they had the same argument like you're going to learn everything that you need to learn in those three years of residency. But that's not true. Like you're always going to have things where you just won't know. So I wasn't feeling burnt out until the last week of my 
last rotation. Cause I, I think it was that feeling of seeing the finish line mm-hmm. coming so close. And I was like, Oh, okay, let's slow down a little bit, but you can't, you gotta keep it going. Um, yeah, I was, I was happy to continue doing it. I really love internal medicine, but you know, different people are going to need different things to recharge. And after I was done with that rotation, I went, you know, almost straight to New York and got to spend six weeks or, you know, five weeks with family. And then they came to Colorado for a little bit, but that's all I needed. And it was sufficient. Nice. That's not bad. I mean, one week of senioritis is uh, pretty minimal, I think, considering. Um, so you talked about a couple of different rotations that you had. I think you said you had a hemonk rotation uh, during your third year. Yep. Yep. Um, are there any other specific experiences that you've had during med- medical school that you would say are just were in- super impactful and will end up being points of strength for you? maybe academically or intellectually during, you know, uh, residency and especially during this first year? Yeah, I think it's one of the pluses that I was able to go. So I did more rotations that were helpful and maybe prepare me a little more for intern year. Who knows? But I I think things like spending time in the ICUs is extremely helpful. If you could spend at least two weeks Mm -hmm. in an ICU just to get used to the presentations because they're systems-based instead of problem-based it's a different a different experience Mm -hmm. so just having that under your belt can be somewhat beneficial for uh intern year where you've seen it before Mm -hmm. that would be great neurology is a great uh rotation to do okay um i would i wish i had an er rotation but i think also an emergency department rotation is definitely helpful as well yeah um in addition to that, I was able to do a nephrology rotation, was which is really uh, in depth. Um, but then, really, just going through the other the other rotations where you're put in a position where you have autonomy, so sub internships. If you can get as many sub internships as you can, that's probably the best thing you can do. Yeah, because you'll, you'll work on your flow for the day, you work on presenting, you work on writing your notes, getting them in on time, and being like a mini resident. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good advice. You know, we've talked about having a diverse range of experiences and, um, also doing sub internships or just anything where you have more autonomy. Cause then you have to think through these problems that patients have them yourself or, or go figure it out in some way. Um, so we talked about the challenges of, that you expect, even though you don't know what his challenges might necessarily be. Um, how do you, this is kind of like a, a resident wellness question, but in what ways do residency programs support residents through these challenges? Um, whether it be emotionally, intellectually, um, or how do you expect to be supported by your program? Yeah. Well, so I believe every residency program has access to an employee assistance program, mm-hmm. which is free help to say if you need any help. Uh, I've heard of it being used through um, people going through divorces and counseling for that, or even counseling for depression or just a place to talk somebody to talk to. You can get counselors. Mm-hmm. So that's always a, a great resource that you can use. Yeah. That's, that'll always be available to you. And then other programs... They can have uh, resident retreats. Um, I've heard of one program doing things where 
throughout the month, they are uh, released early at around two o'clock and they have this resident wellness event for one month. It's like resident wellness month okay. helps recharge. And then outside of the program, I think really setting yourself self up day by day to try and have that one day off to be maximized as possible. So, you know, I think my answer might change <laughs> in, in six months, but for now, my plan is to make sure that, you know, I, I'm well-fed and well-slept. I think having seven to eight hours of sleep a night is ideal for being positive and keeping uh, your mind in a good place. And then also things around the house uh, should be in order before your day off. So laundry, cooking, um, cleaning. Mm -hmm. I think those should be interspersed throughout the week so that when you do have that one day off, you're not bombarded with all these things and you have to pick something rather than relaxing. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's uh, good advice, I think. Well, I guess we'll see. I'll, I'll check back yeah. in with you, see how you're yeah. doing. See if you're getting those eight hours of sleep. Yeah, we'll see. I'll try, but I know there's going to be a lot of studying <laughs> to do in the meantime. One, one thing I'm really excited about in our program, and this is very, very small, but they get to dry clean our, they dry clean our white coats. So that's one less thing that I... <laughs> Nice. I mean, that's sometimes it's the little things. Yeah. Um, all right. Is there any other ideas you have or pieces of advice for listeners of the show or any other things that you want to talk about? Yeah, we, there's a strengths that uh, we have through our experiences in medical school that we bring into residency that we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, some of the weaknesses that I, I discovered during third year, but more so during fourth years is really evidence-based medicine. I feel like we did have classes in first and second year on evidence-based medicine and, and uh, analyzing the literature, but now applying that literature to our day-to-day -day practice. What, what are practice-changing pieces of literature that we're going to use every single day? Yeah. There's this awesome book that I have not completed yet, but I'm, I really love. It's called Ending Medical Reversal. Vinay Prasad. He's a hematologist oncologist at University of California, San Francisco. And he mm. talks about all these things uh, that we do in medicine that are based in kind of ritualistic things like treating high blood pressure. Um, once was treated with atenolol. And uh, he goes into talking about uh, surrogate endpoints and I forgot the other term, but it really was uh, heart endpoints mm -hmm. where you are going to treat a patient with heart failure and you're using a tenolol, the surrogate, surrogate endpoint being the blood pressure, it does go down. But when you look at the heart endpoints, it doesn't pre prevent hospitalizations mm -hmm. and for heart exacerbation of the heart failure. That's why when you treat heart failure, you use an evidence-based beta blocker, carvedilol, pisoprolol, and metoprolol succinate specifically, okay. because that's been studied. And, and that should be things that, well, at least... I'm not sure if that's appropriate in the second year because you have step one to study for it. I don't know if it's entirely, maybe it is. I think it is important to start dabbling into it in third year. Then fourth year, I tried to do that more and more saying, okay, we're going to do this, but why, what evidence is behind the reason that we're doing it? Yeah. And more throughout my years is going and reading the literature and seeing why are we doing the things that we're doing? Definitely. That's something that, excuse me, I feel a little overwhelmed by at this juncture is that the the whole process of 
what am I going to figure out why we use every single medication in every instance? That seems impossible um, and unruly and just, you know, not very realistic. But, you know, I guess if you chip away by being curious and, and figure out why, why am I giving this drug versus another one that's kind of like it, um, then you'll start to put the pieces together and, and start to learn a lot in a short amount of time. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's overwhelming. And it's amazing to see when people cite literature, because if you don't have any other literature to cite when you're sharing your reasoning and your decision making, then the other person kind of, kind of wins. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, it's nice to have that in your back pocket if you could learn it. Um, and it's helpful for, for giving the best care that you can to uh, patients. Definitely. Well, uh, Dr. Mike, I really appreciate you coming on. And, um, first of all, congratulations, not first of all, this is actually the last thing we're talking about. Last of all, congrats on, uh, becoming an osteopathic physician, getting your DO. Um, you've been a, a mentor to me and, uh, a role model that I've looked up to for the about three years that I've known you. And, uh, I, assuming that all of the listeners who are listening to this will say the same about, about you that you've given them great advice and uh pointed them in a, a good direction thank you ross i appreciate i appreciate the congratulations and all that i can't wait to keep in touch more and i i do want to share one last piece of advice that it really really touched me yeah bring it on fourth year and it's a quote that i heard from robbie Geha when i was doing one of the virtual morning reports and he said and i paraphrased he said the burden we bear witness to in medicine is important to acknowledge and can commonly has to be carried with the joy of being in medicine. All the things are extremely hard that we do. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, these, uh, the patients that we experience, the, the plight that they have is shared with you and me connecting, learning about medicine, figuring out a path in life and how we could better help other people. And while it's a sorrow to, to be in medicine, sometimes it's, also a joy and and this was definitely a joy oh well right back at you it was a pleasure talking to you and and i hope we get to uh, keep in better touch than uh, than the last uh year or so because uh, i miss seeing you yeah ditto ditto we gotta go for a run all right let's do it i'll, I'll chase you around cheeseman park sometime You'll pass me. <laughs> all right well uh thanks again and uh we'll have to get you back on and uh and uh, sometime later in your residency, get an update I'd, from you. I'd love that. Well, folks, that is all she wrote for this episode. Let's all join hand in hand in wishing Dr. Mike all the best in uh, the craziness that is intern year in internal medicine. Um, that's all I really have for you. So I just want to, uh, take a moment to appreciate you. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one. Peace. Her uterus was the universe and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed. 
by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died, though. Friends were formed to fight mutual rivals. Man and woman appeared, and they realized there was a thing called love, bringing joy into their lives. Boom, they were civilized, went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne. Built empires, and the story's well known. History ticks along like a metronome. And then I came to be, learned to walk, talk, and throw stuff. All grown up, I got a job now and showing up. I'm sleep deprived, I'm misaligned. My appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time. And then I met you, lovely and smooth. You quickly removed my modern man's blues. I want to celebrate every breath that I take. Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming and I don't want to wait. So baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. And forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. And forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. And forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. And forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe. But I left to pursue the search of love But sometimes it hurt along the way If there's anything I've learned Create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain Protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames Play the game and wonder am I the hunted or the hunter When I was younger I met God and I hugged her She said hey baby instead of getting lost within How about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin Stop, begin, let the thoughts and visions Guide you further down the road Going inch by inch, don't sprint Take it slow, protect your soul Travel long and far, but make sure to come home Cause the love that's here is what keeps you going And gives you the power and the freedom to grow Let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best When life gets complex, don't think, just do it first It was simpler when the uterus was so beamy Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna Body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe. The universe was my universe. All conversation and information exchanged and contained in the podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.